Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to be here with us, to become the best version of yourself. For the last few episodes, we've brought on people that have given us advice, stories, and experience to help us navigate through these times of fear and uncertainty. And today is no different. We are joined by a mindset and leadership coach, a registered psychologist, a sought after performance coach, and an individual with 20 years of experience in leading organizations and individuals to accelerate growth and maximize performance. Gajaravi Chandra, welcome to The Forever Student. Great to be here, Stefan. Thank you, mate. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Before we, before we got online, we spoke a little bit about how we coincidentally got connected uh, during this time. And the first thing that I, that I really want to get into uh, before we really kick off is to get to know you a little bit better. So could you tell us a little bit of how you got into the field of performance coaching? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think, you know, growing up, and I'm sure there are a number of people out there that can relate to this. And I had this real fascination with people. You know, I really enjoyed kind of spending time with people and, and trying to understand them. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, was interesting for me uh, was, you know, I was, I was a good student. But when I got to 11 and 12, you know, the uh, A-levels, the SATs equivalent, right, um, just before college, something happened and I kind of disconnected. And, you know, my performance, I, I didn't achieve what I thought I could achieve. And I was always fascinated by that. And then, you know, I got to university and then and work and, and you know, my performance increased. And I was always fascinated by what were the things that kind of caused that? And if you talk to most therapists, they've probably got their own questions of themselves, right? And that's what kind of drives them to kind of understand more about other people as well. And that kind of then led me into psychology. It led me, um, started studying sort of social psychology. And I always loved sports. I mean, I'm, I'm from the era, this will tell you my age, but, um, you know, Stefan Edberg, Pete Sampras, those guys, right? So, um, you know, I used to have their posters everywhere. I used to follow my local rugby team. Um, I wanted to do sports psychology. And, I, you know, really love motivational theory and, and why people do the things they do. And then you know, some of my professors told me, look, get into organizational um, and then you can transition after about 15 years into sports um, because you'll use similar theories. You'll be a little bit more credible. Um, and that's kind of what's happened, uh, which is really interesting. So, uh, my first kind of major experience, I think that kind of led me into the performance space, it's kind of linked to careers, was when I was an intern psych. And do you know that swimwear brand, Speedo? You come across that yeah. before? Yeah. Um, and I went, uh, I was about 22 years old. Uh, six other people were all dressed in suits, went to the Speedo factory at six o'clock in the morning in the northwest of Sydney. And the general manager stood up in front of 60 people and told them that they had all lost their jobs in a 15-minute speech, right? And the factory was going to be closed. It was going to go to Vietnam. That's where the new factory was going to be built. And we had, you know, I saw for the first time, um, a, a collection of responses, right, from people. Uh, a lot of people there had been working there all their lives. Uh, they didn't know what to do next. Some were catatonic, right? They were frozen and, and didn't know what to do. Some were crying quietly in a corner and some were aggressive. You know, I had uh, actually, you know, women throwing chairs um, uh, around the place, right? There's different kinds of reactions. And that was the first real experience I think I had professionally 
around this mental toughness, resilience, um, and so forth. And, and that kind of drove me in lots of ways to understand more about this. You know, how do we help people at probably their lowest points professionally, right, to kind of pick themselves up? And I think it was from that point, um, you know, a couple of decades ago that really stuck with me and left an imprint. And, you know, I still get involved in helping people at that point in their careers, but um, very much linked to performance, you know, at that point as well. So it's probably a very long answer to your question, maybe, but that's kind of where that comes from. And what is it that you focus on today? Mm. So our business uh, compass is really set up in three areas. We have a a vertical for business schools. So we work with different business schools around the world around career and leadership. Uh, we do that also with um, corporates and government institutions around teams, um, helping teams to become better versions of themselves and individuals, whether they're at CEO level, you know, through to young graduates uh, coming into organizations uh, and, and startups as well. Um, and then also sporting teams. So we work with, you know, individual athletes uh, as well as uh, sporting teams uh, in World Cups, uh, as well as just general tournaments uh, to kind of look at their performance and how they, they manage themselves and improve. And do you see, this might be a bit of a, of a far-fetched question, but because obviously you're working in, in completely different sort of verticals and, and categories, and I'm sure each would have their own uh, challenges and issues. So if you're looking at, you know, a startup versus a big corporation versus a sports team, but do you see any overlap? Like, do you see any commonalities of, of uh, I suppose, blockages to high performance? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are typically these threads, right, that kind of run through high performance. And a lot of it really starts from, you know, that sort of motivational theory, right? Why are people doing the things that they do and what's, what's driving them? And some of that comes down to, you know, their sort of deeply held values about, about things. Sometimes it's about, you know, the kind of impact that they want to have. Sometimes it's about this sense of uh, competition and legacy. You know, we see a lot of these things that are quite similar, you know, across different um, spectrums, right? They kind of drive people's behavior. This unbelievable willingness to overcome barriers and obstacles, this mental toughness, resilience. You know, I was talking to a, um, a sort of special forces commander about this, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, and he's adamant that there is a genetic code, right, that kind of gets people to work harder. You're born with something that you can develop and improve in that mental toughness, resilience space. But of course, there are things that you can learn, right? So it's almost like um, you, know, you want to play in the NBA in basketball, and you know everyone in your family is under five foot five, right? You're going to have a low chance of probably growing tall. Doesn't mean you can't be a Muggsy Bogues and kind of you know dunk the ball and all the rest of it. But you've got some genetic things that might be sometimes in the way. And so a lot of research is starting to unravel this a little bit, right? And that's becoming really interesting. It does not, however, stop us from looking at how we learn. And it's one of the things I love about your podcast, you know, the forever student implies that we, uh, we never stop actually learning and kind of applying things and, and, and taking risks, right, in what we do. And I think that has held true for every high performer that I've dealt with, that they've taken risks, right, that they have done things that others are simply not willing to do. And it's not about whether they can do it, it's that they choose not to. Right, and I think that that's a really big differentiation uh, in the mindset. 
Yeah, just to build on top of what you're saying, and, to, and I guess to somewhat take a step back, how would you, how would you define high performance sort of to begin with? Mm. So high performance for me, and particularly when you link it to coaching and, and how you look at performance, um, there are inputs and outputs, right? So, you know, the inputs are typically the thoughts and the actions uh, and the feelings that kind of someone has, right, to kind of get to a certain point, which is your output, right? It's, it's a measurable outcome that kind of comes from something. So for me, high performance is how do you fine tune these inputs to kind of get the outputs that you are aiming for, right? And, you know, what's really fascinating for me and, you know, time and time again, I see this, you know, when you're talking to a, an executive uh, at an MBA business school, right, a business school somewhere, versus uh, someone who is a, you know, a 10-year-old tennis player who's trying to climb up the ranks, right? Um, there are some very, you know, similar mindset, uh, you know, sort of factors, right, that come into play. A lot of them have to do with this resilience and this capability to kind of reframe things in our minds, right? And, and that's so powerful. And I, I think when it comes to high performance, you know, it used to be that you'd look at, around at everybody else, and compare yourself, right, to everybody else around you. And you know, it's a very collectivist way of looking at the world, right? Whereas, you know, the, the competitors now, and particularly it's becoming very clear that that individualistic focus, right, how do I become better tomorrow than today? What do I need to plant today that's going to help me tomorrow, right? And that sort of singularity in your focus, um, whether it's in business, you know, people like Mark Zuckerberg talk about it, right, in the way in which they answer questions about certain things that they've achieved. Um, certain athletes, uh, Mike Tyson, uh, Michael Jordan, you know, you'll see this in the, in the performances that they have. Now, are they great team players as a result of that? That's a different story, right? It's a different set of skills uh, that we need to look at. So we've got individual high performance and you've got team performance. And, you know, sometimes we need to decluster those things, right, to kind of get a sense of what that looks like. And you mentioned resilience, and I'm very interested about this particular topic. How do we go about building that? Because it's not something you're necessarily born with. It's something that's definitely a characteristic that, that many people want to obtain and, and would add value to both business, life, whatever it may be. You know, where would you start today if you were like, I want to build resilience? Yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful phrase that, um, you know, for those of you who are cricket lovers out there, I don't know if, if there are many cricket lovers out there, um, when the Australians lost to the Poms, the British, in the 1990s, this, this little trophy called the Ashes, um, there was a sports psychologist who focused on this one singular thing with the British team, and it was called controlling the controllables, right? So to build something which is resilience and the sense of toughness. Start with the things that are in your control, right? And if you were to sit down and start writing those things down, you'd realize that you might feel like there's a heck of a lot of things out of your control. And, you know, let's face it, we're in a global pandemic. Economies are being smashed left, right and center. Politicians do not know what to do. Um, you know, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts talking about the fact that there's a you know, you know, it's unprecedented times, right, that, that we are living in. But actually, it's not, right? It, it's the way that we frame these things. We have lived in vulnerable, uncertain, 
complex, ambiguous times before, you know, the VUCA world, right, that everyone talks about. And so those characteristics we have had before, yes, they're framed as a global pandemic now, right? But that sense of uncertainty, you've dealt with it before, right? It might have looked a bit different. It's not called COVID. It's probably called something else, right? And so it's it's using those kind of characteristics and flaws that, you know, we've kind of had to experience or demonstrate and then start applying them in a slightly different context, you know, that can help. So first thing was control the controllables, look at the things in your control and work out what those things are. And the other thing is understanding this beautiful dance that takes place between your thoughts, your feelings and your actions, right? Now, those three things rule our lives, right? And when we start to understand that it's a choice what we think, right? And therefore, that dictates what we feel, and that then dictates how we choose to behave, that then can have a much more positive impact back onto the environment that is having this impact on us, right? It's this external world that is forcing us to sometimes feel like we have to behave in a particular way, right? But that's only because we're feeling a particular emotion or cluster of emotions because we're thinking certain things, right? And so when we sort of compartmentalize that a little bit, we start to then realize that we are actually probably more in control of things than we realize. And so that can be a big factor um, as well. Yeah, I think a couple of points there. One, controlling the controllables is something that I've probably mentioned in every single episode till date. It's one of my favorite things uh, to talk about because it's 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 so incredibly true. Um, that's one. And I think the second thing is, uh, to your second point, we need to think about what we've been thinking about, right? Like, I think once you... I strongly believe this because I think your uh, your your thoughts and your emotions and your feelings are what determine your reality. It determines um, your your personal reality uh, to an extent. So once you start thinking about what you've been thinking about, and once you make a conscious effort to um, to think better thoughts, obviously better is very subjective, but like more positive thoughts and uh, more constructive thoughts, then you'll slowly but surely start changing your reality. I just think that there's a tremendous amount of discomfort that lies in that. When you have to start facing, because you essentially have to start facing what you're thinking. You have to start facing um, things and and emotions that you never really wanted to face, right? Like we kind of go through the motion of life and and we stay distracted and, and we stay busy and we have Instagram and we have Netflix and we have work and we have our personal life and whatever else we may have. And we never really take time to understand what's going on in our head because only once you understand what's going on in your head, are you able to make a conscious effort to start changing it? So I think, you know, to lead up to the question that I then want to ask is what do you, how do you recommend to people or what would you advise to people to basically start entering that area of discomfort and how to, and how to then stay there? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because that that is you know it goes down to this fundamental you know, sort of group of emotions, right? And one is fear, right? And and fear is this real interesting emotion that we have, which is uh, an assumption that we're about to experience something really bad, 
right? Something painful, something that's uncomfortable for us, that we don't want to do that. And so how do we address, right, this thought? Because actually, you know, going back from the fear, there's a thought that's driving that fear, right? And so if we address it by looking at things like, well, what's the mindset that I'm using right now, right? And typically, a fear mindset comes from, or a fear emotion comes from a scarcity mindset. It feels like there's not much that I can do. I remember one of my old bosses used to tell me, you know, are you choosing this from an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset, right? How are you choosing to address this client need, right? Which means, you know, if you come from a scarcity mindset, you're just trying to do the bare minimum. You're in a survival mindset, right? That kind of requires you to then operate from this mid part of your brain, the amygdala, you know, the old limbic system that used to drive us as Neanderthals and is really doesn't play much of a role, right? We don't have many saber-toothed tigers waiting outside our caves to attack us anymore, right? So, you know, we've got, you know, we've got kids for that, right? We don't have, we don't have saber-toothed tigers. So, you know, we've got, we've got this issue where how do we then start to say, okay, if I'm working from an abundance mindset and there are, there are many options out there, what are the things that I can do today, right, that's going to help me? And is that around even getting the right support from people? Right? And there's this wonderful matrix that you can use in, in high performance and dealing with you know, uh, fear and so forth, which is looking at support and challenge, right? And whenever you feel challenged by things, the number one thing that is going to help you to overcome that is support, right? We think about it from a company perspective, right? You're an organization You've been given your KPIs, right, your targets to hit, whatever it might be, and it's really hard right now, right, for lots of people, you know, to kind of hit those metrics that they've been given. But without the right challenge, without the right support, without the right manager giving you guidance, giving you budget, giving you resources, giving you time, right, to be able to achieve the things you need to achieve, that challenge is going to feel insurmountable, right? So then it's up to us then to say, okay, I can either you know, reactively wait for someone to give me that support, or I can actually go and ask people you know, for that support. And what can I do, right? That's you know, in my control or where I can have access to things that's going to help me. And so that you know, becomes really important. And that's a, that's a really beautiful dynamic, right? Between support and challenge. And how do we you know, work those two things together? Um, so that, that, you know, they can help each other because you, you know, we are social creatures. We are built around the fact that we live in villages, we live in clusters, we, we have jobs that actually are created because they are interdependent on each other, right? Um, you know, I saw a, saw a poll the other day here in Australia which asked for the most important jobs, right? And, you know, some of the jobs that came up were waste removal. Right? And you think about if people don't remove waste in our society, we're going to go back into the early 19th century, right? In terms of some of the diseases and, and the various things that were coming up. And you know, we, we sort of have managed to cluster these jobs into various things that actually aren't meaningful to us anymore. And so I think that's one of the things that we need to think about is, you know, what is the perception of these jobs? What are we doing? Uh, to kind of help our society and, and to work on these things. So, yeah, that was kind of a, 
uh, sort of something to focus on, right? Just to go back on that, how wh- what do you think is the main reason or what are the reasons that we are sort of reluctant to ask for support or ask for help? Yeah, the three-letter word ego, um, you know, is such a is a massive part, right, of that, and you know, a sense of believing that we can do everything. You know, I was reading about uh, Roger Federer and Andy Murray. I'm going back to tennis as an analogy, but you know, they have eleven different coaches, eleven different resource pools that they tap into to be the best at what they do, right? And you ask an average employee within an organization, right, how many people do you go to? right, to kind of get support and information and, and advice, you'd be lucky to find one or two people, right, that they can kind of go to. How is that person ever going to elevate their performance, right? How are they going to get out of that mindset that they're in now by not drawing upon the resources that are available to them, whether it's inside or outside an organization or a family, right? Um, and so, you know, that ego can get in the way of us obviously doing that. But the other is then this perception, right, that we're trying to create, um, which is that we are independent and that we are capable uh, and that, you know, by being interdependent on others, that we're we're not able to do things and achieve things uh, on our own and to demonstrate our competence and capability, right? So I think definitely those things um, do get in the way um, of that. I think this also, this is an interesting mindset that comes up around this, which is the victim mentality, right? Things are happening to me, right? And so, you know, sometimes we use the analogy, you know, if you've got to get a bus from point A to point B, do you want to be the bus driver or you want to be the passenger, right? It's your choice, what you want to do. And so, you know, choosing that victim mentality is easy, because it allows us to be able to not take responsibility for things, right? When things go wrong, you know what? Wasn't me. Point to Joe. He's going to take responsibility for that, right? Um, you know, there are presidents right now who do that, right? They'll be unnamed. But I think, that, you know, you see this everywhere, right? It's being role modeled by people. And so, you know, we've gotten to a state where we can walk away and not have accountability for things. And it is easy not to step in and take control because of that, particularly during uncertain times. So this is the point that I really want to double down on, because in the time that we're in with COVID, with unrest around the world, it becomes increasingly easy, which might be a wrong choice of word, to blame the external things for what's happening in our lives. Um, And the victim mindset is basically the definition of that. How do we go about getting out of that mindset? Like what are some, maybe some, some, some tips or some tricks or some habits that, you know, we need to start implementing into our daily lives uh, or some rituals, whatever it may be, where we can put this victim mindset behind us. Mm. So there's probably a number of things, you know, that we can do. So the first is, you know, surround yourself with, with people who actually don't have a victim mindset, right? You know, that whole saying about, you know, average of the five people around you and, you know, all those kind of things. Um, what we tend to find is what a trick that high performers use or people who don't want to have this victim mentality use is that they have this very simple ratio of how they distribute their time in how they relate to other people. So they'll spend one third of their time with people who may be lower performers than them. 
one third of their time with people who are pretty similar, right? Competitive, same level, you know, that kind of range. One third with people who are better than them, right? At whatever discipline or element that they're thinking about. It could be a particular skill set. It could be something there. And what that forces people to do is at that better range, you don't have a choice to be a victim, right? You've got to step up and you've got to demonstrate what you're capable of, right? At that competitive range, there is something driving you that kind of makes you a little bit maybe comfortable, right? But at the same time, you're in an element that you know, but at the same time, you do have to push yourself a little bit. You've got the sort of environmental factors working there, right? Interestingly, the ones that are probably not as performing at the higher level to you, the research has come back time and time again, showing us that people who spend time doing that actually develop much more concentrated ability and confidence in the things that they do. They are teaching people things that help them. And that biofeedback, you know, the information that you're getting from that experience gives you confidence to then go and do what you need to do, right? So we see this with kids who are mentoring younger students. We see this with, um, you know, even coaches or or leaders in organizations who choose to work with younger graduates, right, Um, or more up-and-coming stars through the business. We see this with uh, captains of teams, sporting teams, when they are partnered with somebody at a lower level. Even when those high performers actually go through a rough patch, they actually can fall upon that experience that they've had, right, to build their confidence again. And so you start to see some little little hacks and tricks sort of coming through with with, with things like that. Um, So that segregation of time is really important and surrounding yourself with people at varying levels, right, is is really important as well. Um, Writing things down, you know, we we talk about goals, right, and writing things down as really important. And I know it can be sometimes naff, right, that we kind of, you know, sit there and, oh, I'm going to sit here and write a goal and put a post-it note next to my screen and that's how I'm going to remember what to do. But actually, the reason it happens and the reason it can be impactful is because it's multisensory. Right. And we know that when we engage in activities that are multisensory, so you, it's kinesthetic, you're writing it down, right? You are perhaps saying it to yourself. So it's auditory and, and so forth, right? You're hearing what's happening. Um, it's visual because it's sitting there right in front of you, right? The more senses that we engage in, the more likely that we buy in to whatever that component is, right? And so, you know, you, you start to see these things. And so the more multisensory and, you know, I, I kind of, I actually do this on a daily basis. This is one of my hacks that I tend to use, which is how do I engage in as many multisensory things through the day as I can? Because I get bored very quickly, right? I'm probably a undiagnosed ADD or something, right? And so, you know, you get to a point where you need to try different things to get out of the same mindset that you're in, Right. And the, the human neurology actually tricks us, right? We have these things called anchors and we place these anchors all around us, right? It's the way you and I sit and look at the screen, you know, where our computers are set, where our phone is, uh, the ritual we have in the morning when we brush our teeth to how we get to work, um, you know, all the rest of it. All those anchors actually deceive us, right? Because they drive the context in which we make decisions. 
And because we are used to that and our brain is used to having these shortcuts, right, that allow us to, to behave, we find getting out of that old mindset, whether it's a victim mindset, for example, um, really challenging. So one of the hacks that you can use is to change your context, right? So instead of taking calls at a particular time, change the times. Go from morning to afternoon. Instead of your computer facing one direction, make it change another direction, right? Um, just start doing things differently to create a bit of confusion, right? Now, that's a bit of an NLP hack, right? Neurolinguistic programming hack, because uh, what that is called is a pattern interrupt. And when you do a pattern interrupt, what happens is that you create confusion in the brain. And when you create confusion in the brain or your thinking, that is the best time to plant new anchors, right? You are more vulnerable, right? This is what happens in hypnosis. This is why, you know, when someone wants to put you under hypnosis, they'll do something to interrupt a pattern with you. And then just for a moment, you become vulnerable, right? It's a great sales technique as well. You know, when you're selling things to people, ideas, approaches, um, just to create a sense of vulnerability is to interrupt the pattern that they are expecting from you, right? And so, you know, you can do that with teams, with yourself, with your family, right? Um, it can be quite fun to do. I think those are some great pieces of advice. And I, and I was taking notes while you were speaking because surrounding yourself with, with better people or people who are better than you in specific things is something that's been a big thing in my life as well. Because I grew up as an athlete and my coach always used to tell me, he's like, don't play against players worse than you. Everyone you practice with, every game you play, every match you play, play against someone who's better than you. Um, and then after a while, once you get to a certain level, you know, use your gift and pass it down. Um, start teaching people or have, you know, people who are worse than you play against you because you've gone through that and you've seen value in that. I think that's one, you know, sports example, which applies to everything. Like surround yourself with mentors who are better than you in, in coding or in marketing or in sales or whatever to really start, uh, you know, getting an edge on uh, and, and increasing your level of performance. And I think the second thing about writing down things, writing down, I can't tell you how obsessed I've been with um, essentially goal setting and really going deep into it as well, right? Like, like have the top overlying goal and then a subset goal of that and then create an action plan and implement it to your calendar and all these sort of things. And it doesn't take a tremendous amount of time, right? Like if you take an hour out of your week, it doesn't have to be every single day, take an hour out of your week, uh, you know, the day before you start your week and just go through it and say, okay, what am I going to do this week? What have I accomplished last week? And, um, and it'll give you some sort of structure for your week. And, and, and secondly, what I, what I wanted to say on writing is outside of just the goal setting piece. Also, I think from, um, from more of a journaling standpoint, you know, whatever's on paper is out of your head is, is what I like to say. You know, w once you start writing things down, um, it's almost like you're processing your thoughts in real time. Right. A lot of people are uncomfortable sitting by themselves and in silence and meditating, you know, try journaling. I think it's a, I think it's a great approach. And, uh, and finally pattern interruption is something that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And, and I don't think I've ever, ever done that before. And I think a lot of people are very stuck in their routines. You know, you, you wake up and you, you do X, Y, and Z. And I'm a big believer in morning routines. Um, if they're value adding, of course, 
But if you go through that same process and then you get to work and you do the same thing and then at the end of the day you come back and you're unhappy, maybe it's time for, maybe it is time for patent interruption. Yeah, and it, look, and a great example of this, right, and we see it all the time, is when we go into a course, right, and we want to improve something, communication skills or, um, you know, how we might present something or how we might uh, solve problems. And then we come back from the course, and it could be an online course, you know, course or whatever it might be. Um, you know, remember that remember those days when we used to have physical courses that we would go to and we'd all sit in a room and, and do all that, yeah? Um, you know, those things, we'd come back into the same context, right? And then people wonder, why didn't we get anything from that course? Why have I hardly implemented anything or nothing that I learned has really stuck after three months, right? It's because we've taken this knowledge we learned in context A, and then we've brought it back into the same old context, context B, and our brain has deceived us, right? We haven't changed anything in that context to then say, you know what, I need to actually look at something a bit differently. I think partly that, that is that, right? And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about sort of writing your goals, I mean, it'd be interesting to know whether you do this, Stefan, as well, because I started recently doing this, and it's a lot of fun, is that looking at the three levels of goals, right? So there's one set of goals where... Most people around you that are related in some way to what you do, it's very transparent. They know what they know what it is, right? And they know what you're trying to achieve. There's another level of goals as you step up the hierarchy, which only those you trust deeply, right, are aware of what those goals are. There's a third level of, level of goals, right, that nobody, if you told them what those goals were, they would not even be able to fathom that, right? It just wouldn't compute, right? Now, they are so outrageous, perhaps, right, that you don't want to share them with anybody. But what they do is that they allow you to work backwards to say, well, how do I get to that point, right? What are the things I need to put in place to get to something so outrageous, but I know is going to be really amazing for me to achieve? Now, whether it's a People can sometimes use it to buy a certain property or a home, right, that they, that they really want. Um, perhaps it's about the kind of company that they're setting up and, and the vision that they have for that startup, right? Um, maybe it's about the number of podcast, you know, listeners that they want to have by the end of the year or next year. Um, and it's, it's that level of being able to dream, right, that I think, you know, for some reason, particularly in a survival mindset, it's the first thing to go right? We just refocus on narrow-minded survival, which means we're not using our frontal cortex. We're not doing our rational thinking. We're not spending the time, you know, in, in Darwinian talk of freezing, right? We're just fight or flight. That's it. And it's without that freeze that we're not getting the opportunity to kind of recalibrate and reflect and learn, right? Being a forever student, right? That, that's the critical thing there. Yeah. How do you go about your goal setting? I, I think you just said you recently really started it. How, what sort of your technique? Yeah, so for me, you know, I, I have this particular statement that I have in my head, right? And, and the statement is that I want to leave a trail of happiness behind me, right? So everything that I do has to have some positive impact in the trail behind me. I look over, I look in the rear vision mirror, there needs to be that trail there, Right. And so whether that's the kind of people that I'm interacting with, whether it's the kind of um, institutions that I'm dealing with, 
you know, we've had opportunities to work with um, you know, military equipment, right? Companies that manufacture military equipment, and we've decided no, right? Because it, that for us, is it going to leave a trail of happiness or is it a trail of destruction, right, behind? Um, and it's a very simple sort of filter that I can use to then decide on, you know, whether I'm going to go forward, right, working with that entity and so forth. So that is a kind of a transactional thing that I might use day to day, right, in terms of how I manage things. You know, when I started doing careers and goal setting, you know, 20 years ago, we would look at long-term goals as sort of 10 to 15 years, right? I mean, now it's three to five years. That's the kind of time frame that I think is realistic. I mean, if you can foresee what's going to happen more than five years from now, my goodness, are you going to be in demand, right? I mean, that's going to be phenomenal. Um, and so outside of being an oracle, there aren't many people who can do that, right? And I think that's one of the key things is, you know, let's bring it back to that sort of three to five year time frame that's a little bit more manageable in our minds, you know, to kind of process and deal with, uh, which is interesting. But it also goes back to, I guess, you know, Stefan, one of the things that I get kind of get involved in is the world of work, right? And where things are going. So for me, when I'm thinking about goals, um, we spend a lot of time at work and, and doing the things that we do. Um, one of the big challenges that I'm hearing from people is how do I set goals for myself when I don't even know what kind of job I'm going to have, right, in the future, you know, three to five years from now. And, you know, the more that we look at this, the more we realize that this sense of permanence, right, having a permanent job is pretty much going to go out the window over the next decade, right? The idea that you are going to see jobs saying permanent full-time, permanent part-time um, are pretty rare. And this is all part of this whole fractional employment idea that we're ultimately going to hold maybe a couple of part-time jobs, maybe contract-based that are going to be feeding us, which means we need to sell ourselves, right? We need to work out what is our brand, right? What do, we, what do I stand for? How am I going to be competing now in a global marketplace, right? It's a great thing about having technology. It opens up the market, but it also means I'm now competing with people in so many other countries around the world that um, other people wouldn't have had, had access to, right, typically, um, you know, which is a great thing, actually, for the consumer, um, but it means I need to get better at selling myself and understanding what it is that I bring to the table. So it's a completely different skill set um, in terms of that. So we talk about goal setting now very much around, well, what do you want to do on a regular basis and how are you going to do it, right? So that means what are the skills that I need and the capabilities to be able to do that successfully? Uh, and so if we're moving to a gig economy and, and this fractional employment economy, um, you need to know what your personal brand is, right? You need to be able to articulate that in a very short, succinct way. And so that, you know, is a massive issue for a lot of people because they are very unclear about what is it that they bring to the table and, and, and what does make them special, right? What are, the, what are the factors that come together and make them special? I think when you have a sense of what those things are and where you want to spend your time, then that can make a massive difference, um, you know, to the kind of goals you want to set and where you're going, right? And, you know, we use this um, to get a sense of what that might be for people. We talk about this concept called motivational, well, uh, motivating factors, right? Um, and this is different to motivation. And so, you know, what we'll find is, for example, 
you want to set your time up with things that you enjoy doing and the things that you are good at, right? So let's take an accountant as an example. Most people get into accounting because they, are, they have some sort of affinity with numbers. They kind of make sense, right? You go and ask a 35-year-old accountant, Stefan, are you passionate about accounting? What do you think most of them tell you? <laughs> Correct. So there's a disconnect, right, between maybe something you're good at, right, and something you actually want to spend your time doing, right? So what are these things? Well, actually, if we think about our lives, there's actually a pattern that kind of exists in our lives, right? Even in the career choices we make, the hobbies that we have, the things that we do with our family and friends, there's typically a pattern, right? And mathematics would explain it in chaos theory, right? It would say in any random string of events, right, that you would typically find a, um, a sort of a, a mathematics would explain a pattern, right, that sort of sits underneath it. That's what's happening in our lives, but we need to understand the pattern. So if we look at this concept um, of sort of these motivational uh, sort of factors, then we can start to then go through a process of what we call uh, reflected best self, right? Now, this was created out of Harvard in the mid-1940s at the end of the Second World War when tens of thousands of troops were coming back to the US and the government had no way of knowing where to put all these people, right? So imagine your job, Stefan, was to sit in the back of a plane and shoot down other planes, right? And you got back into the US and then you had to find a job, right? What do you do? Do you become a baker, a dentist, a lawyer, an engineer, like an accountant? What, what is it that you do, right? So this guy called Bernard Haldane, who was the professor of management, actually created this process. And, you know, what it does actually goes to explain the idea that you find 25 achievements across your life, personal, professional, sport, education, work, whatever it is. And then you narrow that down to the seven most impactful stories, right, in your life. And there is a process of actually looking at these motivational factors and then scoring them against your seven stories. And you start to see patterns developing, right? So then you have a criteria that says, okay, if I want to be kind of doing these things here that I know consistently, right, I have been kind of drawn towards and I'm good at and I kind of enjoy doing, what do those things look like, right? And this is actually, oh my God, this is such a long way of getting to being, getting out of a victim mindset. But this is actually one of the things that you can do to get out of victim mindset is understanding this. Because if you understand this, you then have a baseline or a benchmark to start looking at opportunities, right? And to start to say, okay, this is what I enjoy doing. This is what I'm good at. What are the things out there that align to this, right? And how do I now start to talk to people in that space, start networking, start looking at my CV, my, my social media or my digital footprint to kind of, you know, connect that back to, you know, the kind of um, things that make me happy and, and that I'm good at. Yeah, I feel like you've touched on this now pretty significantly, but when, when a person is in a role that, you know, they don't feel is for them and they want to transition into something completely different, right? They want to go from being in a marketing role to opening up a bakery. What, like, I, I, because I think you've, you've already given some steps and you've given some sort of indication on, um, on, on how you can go about uh, starting that process. 
And then what? Like, how, how do you sort of follow through with it? Mm. So it's a good example around the marketing to the bakery, right? So if we use that as sort of example, um, one of the key things is then starting to look at sort of that end point, right? So if it's about owning a bakery, right, what is involved? in kind of owning a bakery, right? There's going to be elements of certain skills that you might need to have around financials, right, of, of running a bakery. There might be things around the technical nature, right, of actually how do you make bread? What are the things that are required to do that? Um, the third thing around what does customer service even look like, right, at kind of running your own bakery? What, what is the location that I need to have? So talking to people who are doing it, right? People who have done it and who are doing it uh, is really critical to kind of understanding what that looks like and, and, and feels like. And then it's almost like drawing a visual, right? Of here I am today as a marketer, I could be working for an FMCG company or an airline or whatever it might be. And here's where I want to be. And understanding, well, if I was to take a step today, right, closer to that particular endpoint. What are the three or four low-hanging fruits that are kind of sitting there, right? Can I go and visit a bakery, right, to actually go and see what that experience is like? And can I go and start developing a relationship with my local baker, you know, to kind of get a sense of that? Can I go and just talk to a broker, right? Google broker for bakery businesses, right, and go and actually find out. Um, what are the bakers? What do they actually do? Um, can I talk to some that would be happy to mentor and guide me? In fact, you know, I've got a fair few friends and family who own cafes, right? They'd never owned cafes before. But one of the critical things that they did uh, to move from a corporate world into, you know, being their own boss was actually to go and spend a heck of a lot of time talking to people who did what they did. And you might get a lot of doors shut in your face, but you're going to get some people who actually mentor and guide you through the process of ownership, right? And they will sometimes even want to walk away from that business and look for potential buyers. And if they've built a relationship with you, there's a wonderful transition, right, that kind of comes into play. And so it's understanding what does that look like? What are the technical and non-technical components, right, of that? Um, and finding some people in that industry and that business, you know, that are willing to spend some time with you. And, and then looking at what is the low-hanging fruit, right, that you can kind of act on today. And, you know, we've got access to the internet and, and people, and most people can get around, you know, still at the moment. Um, so there is access there. But I don't know if that answers your question around that. But You said it beautifully. I think it's, uh, it's just about putting in the work, right, as well. It's, it's not just, it doesn't come easy for whoever's listening and thinks, oh, you know, like I want to transition and there's a quick hack to do this. And it doesn't come easy. You need to put in the work. You need to speak to people. You need to create a plan. You need to put in extra hours. Like after your nine to five, you've got to work from six to 10. You've got to work from six to 12, depending on how you, how much you want this. It's not anymore that, you know, you can't go home and be on Netflix and hang out with friends and, and, and be on Instagram and, and then expect things to come to you. Um, you, you really need to go after it and you really need to chase it if you know what you want to do. And, be, and surround yourself with good people who can support you on that, right? Because thinking that we can do it by ourselves is just not realistic. And, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, Gary V talks about this all the time, right? I mean, he uses a little bit more expletives, but he does talk about the fact if you really want this, right, 
just get up and move and head towards that direction, right? Rather than just sitting there and kind of thinking that, you know, um, season eight of uh, X series on Netflix is coming out. I cannot wait. Uh, the second season of Mandalorian on Disney Channel is coming out. It's going to be awesome. I'm just going to glue myself to that. You know, it's about priority and value, right? And, you know, Dr. Demartini talks about this. He actually says, do things that actually uh, allow you to reach your highest value every day. Do something, one thing, right, that contributes to what those values are, identify what those values are, and do one thing that contributes to you achieving that, right, or living that each day. Um, and it can be that simple. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Gary Vee because whenever I'm feeling a little demotivated, I just watch him for five minutes and I'm straight back to where I want to be. Yeah, I love it because he's it's like he's yelling at me, right? So it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> just need, it feels very <laughs> That's so true. Um, one more question on the victim mentality before we move on from that. If you are surrounded by one or two friends who, who have this victim mentality as the person who doesn't have it, what's your role or what is your, uh, what, what do you do in order to help your friends? Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a real challenging sort of situation and kind of links back to this coaching philosophy. Just some people are uncoachable, right? Some people actually don't want to improve for whatever reason. And they're usually getting something out of it. We're all motivated, right? You know, I had, I've had mums before come and tell me, my son's lazy, he just sits on the couch and he plays video games, you know, for 12 hours a day. Well, actually, that's not lazy. That's actually a heck of a lot of motivation, right, to kind of go and do what he needs to do there. How do you redirect sometimes the focus, right? And I think with human behavior, usually we get payoffs, right, for the behavior that we undertake. So that individual who's got a victim mentality is getting a payoff by being a victim, right? They're getting attention, they're getting something that's kind of reinforcing that behavior. So either we direct it, we, we go directly to that point, which doesn't tend to have necessarily a great outcome, right? Particularly with people who are friends or family or close to you. But the other model is then an indirect approach, right? It's the role modeling, right? It's the exposure. It's the other things that you can do to kind of support them to get out of that funk, right? And so if you think about what is driving that person to be a victim mentality, when you can understand what is motivating them to do that, say it's attention, right? Well, how do we get attention for them for doing something, right? That's, that's re resulting in them being proactive, right? Use the same driver, but just reposition it. Give them a new context, right, in which they can do that in. Take them out of the funk that they're in, right? Um, so whether it's even... Um, going for a drive, right, and kind of looking at a different location or asking for help, right, on something um, where they get a sense of accomplishment, they get a sense of a positive feelings coming out of that can be really powerful as well. So I, I would say, you know, starting to look at understanding what is motivating that person to behave that way and using that motivation in a positive sense. I had a, um, I had a client of mine who, super fit guy, Right. I mean, he, he runs a very large uh, institution uh, in the Middle East and he's sort of in his mid 50s. And I was talking to him about going to the gym and being fit. And I said, you know, I have this 
for me, this physical thing, I enjoy playing tennis and sport and that kind of thing, but I can't make myself go to the gym. He goes, okay, what star sign are you? And I said, uh, I'm Taurian. He goes, oh yeah, Taurian's very stubborn, right? And I went, yeah, I'm very stubborn. He goes, okay, why don't you use your stubbornness for good, right? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you're being stubborn by telling yourself you don't want to go to the gym, right? What if you flip it around and just say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to that voice that tells me I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm going to be stubborn against that voice, right? I'm actually going to screw that voice. I'm going to go to the gym, right? It's almost that level of trigger, right, that kind of takes place. Use the thing that is potentially preventing you and flip it, right, and just change that context. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be that simple, but you usually need somebody else to support you to get you out of that that thought process, right? Because we, it deceives us, right? I mean, we're constantly deceiving ourselves. I think it's interesting. Oh, very well said. When we look at a year like this, and um, specifically in, in your field, what are sort of the most common problems or challenges that you've seen in 2020? Yeah, some of the most common. So I think we've seen confidence dropping significantly off the charts, right, in terms of what people are capable of. And whether it's around, you know, job loss, right, a massive amount of people losing their jobs. Um, If you look at the state of Victoria in Australia right now with the lockdown that's happening, the report today was that every day of a lockdown, there's $100 million out of the economy and 1,200 people a day are losing their jobs, right? The impact that that is having on people right now in terms of confidence and therefore the amount of competition also to go back and find a job, right, is really immense. So I think there's there's that. Um, if we were to look at the, the sort of four elements of mental toughness would probably give us a good example, right? So, you know, confidence is one, control, which we've talked about, um, you know, emotional control and, you know, feeling, you know, that you are the bus driver. Commitment is the other sort of element, right? A lot of people not necessarily wanting to put the effort that's required. I mean, you spoke about it beautifully, Stefan, around just got to get up and do it, right? And sometimes, you know, I do a thought experiment with people sometimes, particularly around things like, you know, finding another job, Um, networking, right? Everyone hates networking, right? I don't want to be, I feel like a sleazy person. I haven't talked to this person in six months. Why do I have to go out and ask them whether I can have a coffee with them? Um, But when you do a thought experiment, you realize actually the tricks that the mind plays on you, right? And so if you do a thought experiment and you say to somebody, okay, so you don't want to get out and, and talk to somebody, you know, to network. What if I come to your place tonight and I take your wife and I take your eldest child and I leave a note that says that if you don't talk to 50 people over the next month, that um, I'm not going to return them to you. Unless you talk to the 50 people, you then start to engage in conversations and get down to three or four interviews over the next month. Do you think you'd do it? The answer is probably, yeah, assuming they love their child and their wife, right? <laughs> they probably do it. Now, what's interesting is motivation. That's it. It's not that you can't do it, right? It's that can you be bothered to do it? Is it important enough for you to do it? 
Now, the research tells us we spend more time planning our holidays than we do thinking about the careers and jobs that we have, right, proactively. What is actually the important element? What are we spending our time on, right? And I think that's one of the key things for me in all this is people are spending time on things that are not important, right? They're transactional. So it's almost like having a reminder in your calendar to tell yourself, um, I need to have some reflection time. You know, Bill Gates used to do this early on at, at Microsoft, right? Every Friday afternoon, he'd have an hour where he's locked away and he's thinking, and he took it to a week. Obviously, you know, you might have seen some of the documentaries and so forth. Um, and, and you start with things that are manageable and tangible, right, for you. And you start to increase that. And what that allows you to do is to take control, but also then to choose the things that you want to focus on, right? Choose on those elements. Um, so I think commitment and putting that effort in is a big factor. The other is challenge, right? People are feeling like they can't take risks right now, right? And so if you're stuck doing the same things in an environment that is completely changing, what's going to happen, right? We're going to get left behind. And so we need to start doing things that are a little bit riskier and in inverted commas, right? We need to start actually pushing ourselves into that state of discomfort um, and to start doing things that perhaps we might not have done before. And if that means looking at other people that are doing that and, and observing and, and, and watching the role modeling, or even just um, you know, spending time with different people, diverse groups of people, right, is really important. And so it could be as simple as spending time in a different suburb at a cafe, right? And I've noticed this many times where people have come back to me and said, you know what, I went from the west of Sydney to the northern suburbs of Sydney, and I've been spending a week there just doing work and listening to the conversations and got some ideas about things. And I just started realizing that, you know, context changes things, right? They're kind of, the, the deception changes. It's those kind of things that I think can make a difference. I think the last thing you mentioned is very much what you spoke about before, which is the disruptive pattern interruption, right? Like that would essentially be the same thing where you just, you completely switch up your environment, you switch up your, your, your daily practice or your daily routines, and all of a sudden you have new thoughts, which lead to new actions, which lead to new behavior. Mm, mm, absolutely. The cycle continues. The cycle continues. When you look at your sort of the, the, the top performers of the performers that you work with, what are some habits or what are some things that they do on a daily basis outside of everything you've mentioned so far that uh, either sets them apart or, or makes them a role model for, for others? It, there's a couple of things that I, when I think about not just sport, but also, you know, within the business context and, and sort of, you know, work context as well. Um, so one of the things that a lot of people do is that you can use a bit of a sports analogy here is, is the idea of personal bests, right? So when someone goes into training and, you know, you start your day, you are trying to have a personal best that day. So if we were to ask ourselves, what's my personal best going to be today, right? It'd be a very hard thing to kind of define, right? But I'm getting paid by somebody to do something, right, at a certain level. Why couldn't I try and do that better than what I've done before, right? Now, what does that require of me? Maybe it requires more reading and research. Maybe it requires me putting in more time. Maybe it requires me asking more questions, 
right? So there's going to be some things around that, the idea of personal bests, right, that we kind of set for sort of the high-performing teams as well. Um, and so as an individual, you know, if you can set a couple of personal bests each week, you know, that can be a really powerful thing, um, you know, for you to kind of focus on. The other thing that high performers, you know, really do quite well is that they they have rituals, right? And we and you've talked about rituals before, and you know, and the importance of those. And those rituals, you know, typically aren't just about themselves. Those rituals are also about, for a better choice of word, the entourage, right? The family and the friends and the people around them, right? How are you choosing to spend your time, your downtime, right? How are you choosing to make sure that you rest, right? There's so much research coming up about sleep right now. We're not getting seven hours of sleep as adults. We are fundamentally damaging our bodies, right? And the other thing about sleep, obviously, is that with that deep sleep, that's when we deal with all our unconscious concerns, our problems, the things that we don't get to consciously, you know, during the day. And, you know, it explains to me so many times when I've woken up and I felt agitated and distressed about something and I couldn't explain why that was, right? And it's taken me a while to get out of this funk, you know, in the morning, right? And it's typically linked back to the lack of poor quality of sleep that I've had. And so, you know, undertaking that is really important, understanding when you should be sleeping, how long you should be sleeping and the depth of your sleeping, you know, is really important. Um, and, you know, that along with the sort of personal best side is really critical. Um, again, I kind of mentioned that, you know, splitting up your time, one third, one third, one third, people better than you, one third people at your level, one third of people, you know, who are not performing at your level that you can help support and lift. Again, something that a lot of high performers, you know, tend to spend time on as well. But the idea of having mentors, you know, people that you can go to who have done it before, uh, is so vital, right? And, you know, we all go through tragedy, we go through problems, we go through issues. And I think it's having those people around you that can sort of support you during those times. Uh, that's really, really important. And so I cannot think of a high performer who has sustained performance in virtually any profession that has not had a few mentors that they kind of go to, right? It just doesn't happen. And so if we know that, then we need to put in place, right, these kind of structures and systems that allow us to have access to these people. Um, and so I think that, that there's probably another thing that they do really well, right, have access to people. The last question I have for you is when it comes to someone's listening today and say, I want to become a high performer, um, whatever Gaj was talking about today, I want to do that. What is the one thing that they can do today? Or what is the one piece of advice you would give them today in order to start that journey? The most important thing, it's a really good question, man. It's, this is going to sum up my life, isn't it? This, this one answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, you know, I, I, for me, the more that I see high performers and, and you know, people who are performing at a high level, they, they have this uh, level of commitment, right, to something that I don't see in regular folk, right, people who are average performers at, at whatever task. And that requires a plan. It requires a strategy, right? 
And so without a strategy and a plan, you really are just kind of just swimming around and sometimes directionless, right? So you need to have a point that you are heading towards. You need to have you know, what, what some people call a North Star or a goal or whatever it might be that you are heading towards. And I think it needs to be outrageous, right? The more outrageous, the better, right? Because, you know, that whole saying about, you know, you aim for the moon, you miss, you're still in space, right? And I think that sort of sense of having something that is outrageous for you to go towards allows you to then work backwards in a plan to kind of get to that point, right? And so for me, I don't think there's ever been a high performer who's accidentally gotten there, right? And so you need to have that structure and plan. Um, And it used to be that you might have gotten a job through luck, right? That you're in the right place, the right time, someone taps you on the shoulder. But that can only be sustained for a certain amount of time. You can't keep doing that, and particularly in an environment like we're in now. And so I would say the one thing is to sit down, dream big, and start working backwards, right, to where you are today, and be honest with yourself about where you are today. You don't have to share that ultimate dream with everybody. We talked about those three levels of dreams, right? But finding somebody who can help you on that would be the next thing. I think I've already cheated. There's two things, right? So, um, no, no, no. <laughs> no, it was one, it was one big overriding plan. And just to add to that, I think one thing that you mentioned earlier, besides having sort of that North star and that North star would be the big dream. I think a parallel North star would be sort of how you want to live your life, right? Because what you mentioned earlier was everything I do, I want to leave behind a trail of happiness. For me, that's not a North star as a goal but that's how you want to live your life. And everything that you do, you know, has to reflect that. And so, you know, that end goal is also going to be a product of you staying true to that parallel North Star, so to say. It's a wonderful way of looking at it, right? It's the what you want to achieve and, and what does that look like and then how you're going to do it, right? And it's, it's, it's that, absolutely. It's a combination of the what and the how, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, that was an incredible time flew really, really, really flew. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for you being here today. I think I've learned a tremendous amount of stuff and, and I hope our listeners have to really keep it up. Can't wait to wait, listen to the next one. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you, man. What a fantastic conversation with Gotch today. Here's a quick recap of what we spoke about and a few things that you can implement into your life today. First, let's start by defining high performance. High performance is fine-tuning the inputs to maximize the outputs. High performance do things that others simply are not willing to do. They think about what do I need to plan and do today to become better tomorrow? We spoke about how we build resilience. First, and time and time again, we hear the sentence come up, control the controllables and let go of whatever is outside of that. Second is to understand the dance that takes place between your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions, how they influence each other, and how you can adapt them to your advantage. Then we spoke about fear. Fear is an assumption that we're going to experience something bad and painful. What are the things that we can do today to deal with fear effectively? And that is to look at challenge and support. Whenever you feel challenged, 
Know that the number one thing that's going to help you overcome that is to seek support. We are interdependent upon each other. We need others to succeed. So drop on the resources available to you and ask for help when you need it. We also spoke extensively about the victim mentality, where we don't take accountability for our actions and responsibility for our results. How do we get out of that? Number one, surround yourself with people who don't have a victim mentality. Be around people who are better than you in whatever you're interested in, as well as with people that you can teach. This will bring you fulfillment and confidence and will allow you to grow out of feeling like a victim. Number two, write things down. It's so important. Whether this is journaling or goal setting, put it on paper. And number three, pattern interruption. Even though I'm a big believer of morning and evening routines and value-adding habits, there lies value in changing your environment. Take a different route to work. Sit at a different desk you usually go to. Go for a long walk in an area away from your house. These pattern interruptions will spark creativity and can help change your mindset. We also discussed goal setting and some ways to go about this. What I would love for you to think about is your North Star. What is the outrageous goal or dream that you're going after? And what kind of person do you need to be in order to make that happen? Then think about what you're currently doing and how you're currently thinking and acting. Are those things in line with your goals? And finally, transitioning from what you're currently doing to something completely different. Firstly, research. What do I know? What information can I access? And what needs to be done for me to get there? Secondly, talk to the people that are doing it or have done it. Remember the example of the bakery. Speak to the baker. And thirdly, create an action plan. What are the low-hanging fruits you can execute immediately? What are some longer-term steps? Write them down, allocate the timelines to them, and then start and continue to put in the work.